0: Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. He has basically one of his brothers prophesy against him. And in this prophesying against him, we see what is going to happen to Abimelech. And we didn't quite get there last week, but if you read the end of chapter number 9, Abimelech goes to attack and a woman throws a rock out of a tower and smashes his head. And if you've been following along with us, Evil always gets his head smashed in the scriptures, does it not? It seems like a common thing, especially in the book of Judges, that we see evil getting its head smashed. Abimelech cries to his servant. He says, look, I can't go out being killed by a woman. This can't happen. So I need you to kill me now. Just stab me now. So they say, at least he didn't die from a woman. Well, guess what? We have the scriptures. We know how he died. A woman threw a out of a tower. And he, like a coward, said, you got to stab me now. So we have Abimelech's life ending. And as we saw last week, we have two judges that we really don't know much about. But what we do know is that Israel was given rest. If you look over in verse number or chapter number 10, I'm going to start out reading some this morning in verse number 6. And once we get up to verse number 11, we'll we'll pray and actually get into looking at Jephthah. But in verse number 6 of chapter number 10, I want to read what's going on in the life of Israel. Verse number 6 says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. We knew that was going to happen, didn't we? And they served Balaam and Ashroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zion and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served him not. Basically, they just went and got all the gods they could find and served everybody else except for Yahweh. Verse number seven, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon. Look down to verse number 10. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. So they get into trouble and they say, Lord, we've sinned because we forsook you and we served Balaam. But this isn't a true repentance. They're in trouble and they say, look, we did wrong, obviously, And they simply just say, look, we've sinned. What does the Lord say in verse number 11? And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the children of Ammon, and from the Philistines, the Zidonites also, and the Amalekites, and the Moabites, who did oppress you? And ye cried unto me, and I delivered you out of their hand. So he recounts to them every single time that they have done this. They've gone back again and again. He says, I delivered you over and over and over. Verse 13, yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. Basically, God says, "Look, i we've done this. We've we've played this game over and over and over. So, since you want these other gods, go ask them for help. You have chosen other gods, and you're wanting help from me now, not because you're actually repentant, but because you're in trouble again. Mm-hmm. You just want. You're just coming back because I'm the one who has, pardon my language, I'm the one who has bailed you out every time. So you're coming back to me." Almost like the person that, you know, that person that you loan money again and again and again. They never talk to you until they need money again. That's what the children of Israel were doing. They knew the one person who would bail them out. So they were coming back to him. Look at verse number 15, though. And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatever seemeth good unto thee deliver us only we pray thee verse number 16 we see some evidence of their heart and they put away the strange gods among them and they served the lord so they kind of put some action to what they were saying they didn't just say hey we need somebody to bail us out they actually said look we we get we get it and they're going to get it for about six years but for a second they get it again And the Bible says that the Lord's soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. So they put away their gods, they served the Lord, and it said the Lord was grieved. He, he saw the strife that they were in, and he had compassion on them. Yeah. Yep. It's not an accident that in this text we see the author mention Seven different gods of seven different nations. And if you want to go look, you'll find these nations in Deuteronomy chapter number seven and verse number one, because these are the exact seven nations that God told them to drive out. If you remember back to the beginning of the book of Judges, what did God say? He said, you didn't drive these people out like I told you, so they are going to be a snare unto you. And we get to this chapter in the book of Judges and we see that these gods and these people had become a snare to Israel just like God had told them would happen. They were told to drive them out and now they have become like them and are worshiping them. But we saw in verse 16 that God has compassion again on Israel. In verse 17 and 18, the children of Ammon, they gather together, they gather their armies together, and we're going to be introduced to a man by the name of Jephthah. There's some interesting things about this man, Jephthah. And you're going to start to notice as we read this biography that we have of him in the beginning of chapter number 11. Some similarities between some of the previous judges. Before we get into all of that, let's pray this morning and ask the Lord to open our minds and give us what he would have to give us from the text. Lord, we pray as you op- as we open your word, Lord, let us see what you have written to us. I pray that you will take your words and you will stir our hearts That we might see you, see your faithfulness, see the faithfulness of Christ for us, and let that be what changes us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, chapter number 11. We have a man named Jephthah. Verse number 1 says, Now Jephthah the Gideonite was a man, a mighty man of valor. He was the son of an harlot. Remember Elimelech? Abimelech, who who was he? He was the son of Gideon and a slave, a concubine. Well, this man is the son of a harlot. He's he's the son of of Gilead. He's the son of the man who was over the people of Gilead. But he was the son of a harlot. He wasn't just the son of a concubine. He was literally the son of a prostitute. Verse number two, And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and the wives' sons grew up. And let's see what happened. It sounds really similar to Abimelech. And they thrust Jephthah out. And he said unto them, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Again, it sounds just like Abimelech, does it not? Abimelech, son of a concubine, thrown out of his house. They said, you're not getting any inheritance. Well, hopefully this guy don't turn out like a Verse number three, Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. So it's interesting to note here where Jephthah goes. Jephthah leaves his home. He flees from his brethren, and the Bible says he dwells in the land of Tob. The land Tob literally means good. So he leaves and he dwells in the land of good, but he gathers vain men together with him. So basically what we have here is this, this ironic land of good with bad men. So we've got this good land and there's bad guys here. One of the things as I was reading through this over this past week that I thought was was interesting in what God is doing here in relaying this to the children of Israel, God tells Israel that you've gone prostituting yourselves to these other gods. He says you've gone whoring after these other gods. So we have Israel who is prostituting itself. And, and in a sense, its children, the children, of, the children of Israel, are products. They're following gods that are products of spiritual prostitution, correct? So Jephthah here is of, he's a son of Gilead. But what is he a product of? Just like Israel had been prostituting themselves out, we find this man who is the product of a physical prostitution. And what we find him doing, the Bible says here, he gathered vain men unto him. Basically what Jephthah does is he leaves and he becomes the leader of the guys that nobody wants. He has basically gathered up himself A band of thugs, if if you want to put it that way. They weren't as good as Robin Hood, but in a sense, if you want to think about it like that, so we've got this outcast who gathers to him a bunch of these other outcasts. Robin Hood had his Merry Men. Jephthah has his vain men. They're just they're they're going around and just getting by. But the Bible tells us that Jephthah is a mighty man of valor. He's a good leader. Well, as Ammon, and I want you to make this distinction as we go into this, we have the children of Ammon, the Ammonites, and there's the Amorites. And both of these are going to be mentioned this morning. So keep in mind that the children of Ammon, the Ammonites are the ones who are gathering outside of Gilead. Move down to verse number five. And we see something happen that is kind of unexpected in a way. It says, And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Pheth Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our captain that we may fight the children of Ammon. So the guy that they kicked out, they go and say, Hey, come be our captain. (laughs) To which we will see that Jephthah's response is basically, look guys, I thought you didn't want me. You said you didn't want me around. Why do you want me now? But what he does is he takes advantage of this situation. And what we're going to see about Jephthah is he was a good politician. He was a smart guy. Not only was he a good soldier seemingly, but he was was just smart. He was, if you think back even through the history of America, he would have been... And, and I don't know my history about this person as well as I should. So let's just use an ex- as an example. Someone like Dwight Eisenhower, who was a military leader and a politician. And again, if that's a bad example, then make up your own in your mind. But you get the point. We have a guy who was kind of the, the full package, except for the fact that he'd been kicked out of his home. What the does in verse number nine, he says, all right, fine. I'll do it. But look at the end of the verse. He said, If the Lord delivers them before me, shall I be your head? What did they tell him? They said, Look, if you'll come deliver us from Ammon, you can be our captain. It's like you can be our military leader. You can be the you can be the guy who, who heads up all of our forces. You can be the captain. He says, No, if I'm going to do this, I'm taking everything. I'm going to be the head. I'm going to be the chief. I'm going to be over it all. To which they say, fine. If it gets us out of the spot that we're in, that's fine. So Jephthah goes in verse number 10 and 11, and they swear before the Lord that they're going to make Jephthah the head of their clan. And that's one of the things that we kind of have to understand as we have gone through the book of Judges. This isn't Israel as a whole. We have these clans of people. Israel has not been united because they didn't have a king. Throughout the book of Judges, we read there was no king in Israel. There was nobody to unify the people. So these different clans are basically out on their own. So he says, look, if you made me the head of the clan of Gilead, then I'll do it. So they do that. And we get into this scene where we see this real political side of Jephthah. Down verse number 12 area. So they make Jephthah the captain over all of these hosts. And instead of gathering up a bunch of troops, what Jephthah does is he comes in And he sends messengers to the king of Ammon. And we see that in verse number 12. He sends messengers and basically says, what are you doing? What do you want with us? What did we do to you? To which the king of Ammon sends back and says, you took my lands and I want them back. He's like, I don't want to fight. I just want back what's mine. Well, there's some problems with that. And we see Jephthah account these things beginning in verse number 15. And I won't read through all of this, but if you want to read through verse number 15, down through verse number 27, you will see Jephthah give arguments and explanations on why the king of Ammon was incorrect. He does this in three different ways. In verse 15 through verse number 22, Jephthah sends a messenger back and says, okay, you said you just want the land that we took from you back. And he gives a historical argument. He says, well, there's one problem with what you're saying. We never took the land from you. And he goes to and explains that when the children of Israel had left Egypt and were given the promised land, they went the long way around to the land that they had been given. They had been told in the book of Leviticus not to fight the children of Moab and not to fight the children of Edom. They said, don't, God said, don't fight them. That land is not yours. If you remember back, who were Edom and Moab? They were the children of Lot's daughters yes. and, and Lot. But God said, don't fight them. So they go the long way around. And if you know the story of Israel, they have a habit of going the long way around. When they leave Egypt, they take the really long way around and spend 40 years just wandering around. But what Jephthah does, he says, we came in, we didn't, fight Moab. We didn't fight Edom, but we got up here. We asked if we could go go through their land. They said, no. So we went around. We came to the next guys. We said, can we go through your land? They said, no. So we went around. Well, they get up here to where the Amorites are. And again, the Amorites, not the Ammonites. And they say, can we go through your land? And ironically enough, this was accounted even in our Psalm this morning. He said, you delivered us from the, from the Amorites. Yeah. What they did, they said, can we go through the land? The king of the Amorites said, no. And as a matter of fact, I don't even want to hear it all. So he attacks them. What God does is he delivers the Amorites into the hands of the children of Israel. And because of that attack, the land of the Amorites were given to Israel basically took the land the Amorites had, which is the land that the Ammonites are now saying was theirs. (laughs) So apparently the king of Ammon, I guess he just wasn't listening in history class when he was a kid. He just thought the land was his. He didn't know that it was never his. So Jephthah, this, this Son of a prostitute, this outcast, schools the king of Ammon in a history lesson and says, look, I get you say that you want us to have this land back, but we didn't even take it from you. It was never yours to begin with. Well, the king of Ammon didn't like that. So then Jephthah makes a theological argument. He says, okay, fine. You don't want to take this history for example. I'm giving you the facts. You don't want the facts. That's fine. So let me give you some theology instead. He said, our God gave us this land. Your God didn't give you this land. And we see that in verse number 23 and verse number 24. He starts to say, well, if this land was yours, then why why didn't your God give it to you? God gave us this land. Our God gave it to us. Your God didn't give it to you. So it's not yours. It historically isn't yours. And even theologically, it's not yours. King of Ammon doesn't like this either. (laughs) He's kind of a hard-headed guy, apparently. So, Jephthah makes a third argument, and he gives a legal argument. So, he's given a historical argument in verse 15 through verse 22. He gives a theological argument in verse 23 and 24. And then he gives a legal argument in verse 25 and 27 through verse 27. Basically, what this legal argument is, is... Jephthah says, look, it's been over 300 years. Even if this land was yours, which it wasn't, and even if your God had given it to you, which he didn't, it's been over 300 years since any of this happened. So why now? For, for lack of a better way to say it, Jephthah is saying, look, the, the time to file this grievance is over. The Statue of Limitations has passed. Well, to these arguments, I don't know if he was just dumbfounded and didn't know what to say, or he was just hard-headed, but the king of Ammon doesn't even reply back after this third argument. He He doesn't say anything. He just gets ready for war. So whether he was just dumb and didn't know what was going on and just thought it was his, or whether he was using these things as a reason to take it, we see the king of Ammon who is going to do whatever it is that he wants to do. And this leads us into the section of Jephthah that we know. This is what Jephthah is known for. We see in verse number 28, Howbeit the king of the children of Ammon hearken not unto the words of Jephthah, which he sent to him. So he sends them all his messengers and the Bible says that the king of Ammon didn't listen to any of it. So let's pay attention to what happens in verse number 29. This is something that we haven't seen in a couple of judges. Verse number 29 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh and passed over Mizpah of Gilead. And from mizpah of Gilead, he passed over unto the children of Ammon. What do we see in verse number 29 that stands out? What's something in verse number 29 that we've not seen in a while? It says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. God has literally given his promise, his promise and his presence to Jephthah. This is a sure thing. Jephthah will win this battle. Unless the spirit of the Lord was going to fail, Jephthah was going to be the winner. But we get into verse number 30 and we encounter a problem. Verse number 30, And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, Then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return from peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Verse number 32. So Jephthah passed over the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. We knew this was going to happen, did we not? Because the spirit of the Lord was on Jephthah. God's promise and his presence was on this man, ensuring that he was going to win. Jephthah, in an effort to throw his two cents in, says, Lord, if you let me win, I promise I'm going to do something for you. And we see this promise take a really bad turn when we get down to verse number 34. So Jephthah has the Ammonites delivered into his hand. They win this battle. And Jephthah came back to Mizpah, unto his house. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass that when he saw her, he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. Literally, Jephthah says, you've literally brought me to my knees. You've brought me lower than I could have ever been. And thou art one of them that troubled me. He says, not only have you brought me down, you have become just as bad as the Ammonites. Why? Why? For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do unto me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of the two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And she knew no man. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughters of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. So we have Jephthah winning the battle. He gets back to his house. He's made this promise to God, and the first thing that comes out to greet him is his only daughter. Jephthah, quite frankly, and I mean for good reason, is tore up about this. He says, not only ha and that's the one thing that I found ironic. He basically blames her. He says, This is your fault. And he says, I opened my mouth, but this is really your fault. She says, Well, whatever you said, you have to do now. Just let me go away for two months. And at the end of the two months, I'll come back and you can do what you said to God. You can do what you said that you would do. So we come to the end of this really abruptly it just says that the children of israel lamented over her for four days every year they basically grieved over her for four days out of the year down into verse number 12 or chapter number 12 verse 1 through 7 we see this event that happens seemingly directly after this and you're going to again recognize some of this from the previous chapters and the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and went northward and said unto Jephthah, wherefore pass thou over to fight against the children of Ammon and did not call us to go with thee. You remember Gideon? Gideon wins the battle and then his, he's coming back through the children of Ephraim said, hey, why didn't you call us? Yeah. Well, Gideon says, he, he basically puffs them up. He says, you're just too strong. You've already won so many battles. I didn't think you would want to be bothered with it, basically. Well, the Ephraimites are even madder at Jephthah than they were at Gideon. It says that they say unto him, we will burn down your house with fire. They said, look, you didn't call us, so we're going to take revenge because you didn't call us for help. Jephthah says unto them, I and my people were at great strife. This is, this is a really, really interesting statement. And, and it, it actually kind of made me laugh when I was reading it. Because basically what Jephthah says is, he says, I and my people were at great strife. Literally how this reads is Jephthah says, I and my people are a people. We're a striving people. This may be lost on on some, I think most of you here will get this reference. But basically, when Jephthah makes this statement, I and my people are of a great strife, we are striving people, he basically tells them, he's like, look, y'all guys are being stupid, but if you want to fight, I'll be your huckleberry. It's like, look, if you want to fight, that's fine, I'll fight. And that's exactly what we see happen. And Jephthah said unto them, I and my people are of a great strife, And with the children of Ammon, and when I call you, you deliver me not out of their hands. He even says to us, look, I called, I tried to ask for your help, and you didn't come. And when I saw that you were delivered me not, I put my own hands in my life, and I passed over against the children of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into mine hand, wherefore then are ye come up this day to fight against me? He said, the fight's over. If you want to fight, we'll fight. That's fine. But this is dumb. And verse number four, we see Jephthah win another victory. Then Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead, and they fought against the Ephraimites. And the men of Gilead smote the Ephraimites, because they said, Ye are Gileads are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassehites. And the the Gileadites took the passage of Jordan before Ephraim, and it was so that when the Ephraims were escaping, they said, Let me over. And the men of Gilead said unto them, Art thou an Ephraimite? And if he said nay... Then they said unto him, Say now Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him upon the passages of Jordan, and there fell at that time of Ephraim 42,000 men. What we see happen here is Ephraim comes against them, and the children of Gilead basically just kick their tail end. They said that the whole fight started because the children of Ephraim told them they were fugitives of Ephraim. Basically, said, y'all are the outcasts of us. Ironically, Jephthah was an outcast of Gilead. And they're telling to Gilead that y'all are outcasts, y'all are just runaways from us. It's interesting to note that whenever they start losing, they're runaways back to home. But we see this battle, and they get—basically what happens, the children of Gil, they take the passageway. They take the road that leads back to Ephraim, and as people come through there, they ask them if they're Ephraimites. They didn't have uniforms on. They didn't know who was who. So they said, are you an Ephraimite? And they would say, no, I'm not an Ephraimite. I'm one of you. So they would say, well, I need you to say a word. They would say, say shibboleth, but they couldn't say it. They weren't able to say the S-H sound, so instead of Shiblet, they would say sibileth. Almost like if you go to South Carolina, and there were even times in the Civil War that this happened. There was a town in Virginia that the way they knew if it was a Union spy was if they pronounced the town incorrectly. Go down to South Carolina. Ask somebody. There, there, there's a word. Ask them where Lancaster is. And they would tell you, I don't know, Lancaster's somewhere up north. Now, Lancaster is down here. It's the same kind of thing. You, Lancaster, Lancaster, Cherryville, Cherryville. It's that same kind of idea. They weren't able to say the word correctly. And so if they didn't say it right, they killed them. And this wasn't just some little skirmish. What does verse number six say? There were 42,000 men killed that day. This was, in essence, a civil war between two tribes. And it was a massive one. 42,000 is a lot of people in our day. If we sent troops overseas and 42,000 died in one day, I'm pretty sure we would be trying to figure out which general we're going to fire. Yes. But in that day, 42,000 is even more. I mean what, there's eight, nine billion people in the world. If if you want to account for inflation, this was like a million people. Don't run my numbers on that. I just made it up. So, but this was a lot of guys. So we see Jephthah, he wins this second battle. And the Bible tells us in verse number seven that Jephthah judged Israel six years and then died. And he was buried in the city, one of the cities of Gilead. So he was buried back at home. All right, so I know everybody's mind is in one place right now and it's back with Jephthah's daughter. I've actually even been hyping my kids up about this all week, telling them I'm going to be talking about something and I haven't told them how it turns out. And I'm not gonna tell you either. There's basically two different views on what happens here. There's a view that says that the way that Jephthah says this is Basically saying, any person who comes out, I will give them to the Lord. Almost like Hannah gives Samuel to the Lord to serve the Lord in the tabernacle. And this kind of can make sense because if you read through that section over and over again, I think four different times, we see lament for her virginity. In a sense, the view is that she basically became a nun, that she was given over to the work of God. And that may very well be the case. But the other view is also possible, and that view is that he literally sacrifices his daughter. There's a few different things from this text that we can understand. Whenever he says, whatever comes out to greet me, whatever opens the door of my house and comes out to greet me, I will give to you. That is only ever used in a person-to-person interaction. And that makes sense because when I get home, my dogs don't open the door. So Jeff is saying, whatever comes out to greet me, I will give it to you. But he says, I will give it to you as a burnt offering. Now, again, if you read the book of Leviticus, there is some some information that we read in Leviticus that has this hypothetical sacrifice that is given. But in the text, it literally says, I will give you as a burnt sacrifice. Which one happens, I'm not here to, to try and tell you. I'll let you decide which one is more palatable for you, whether he actually sacrificed, whether he kills his only daughter or whether he gives her up to the service of God. But really, either one of these isn't... I mean, while we want to know, it's not really relevant to what we need to understand from this text. Why did Jephthah do this? That's the real thing that we need to ask about this part of the story. Why did Jephthah vow something to the Lord? And assuming that he actually did plan to give a human sacrifice, why in the world would he do that when Deuteronomy says that that is a detestable thing that God hates? As a matter of fact, when we see Israel driving out different people groups and even God saying kill all of them, A lot of the times that this happens, the reason this is happening is because these groups of people are sacrificing people and even children. There are groups where they're sacrificing their infants to Molech and God uses the children of Israel to judge them for that wickedness. God hates that. But why do we see Jephthah making such a vow? I don't want to miss this morning... Jephthah makes this vow, and what do we see God do? Does he answer him? We don't see God speak again after this. God doesn't answer him, and God never asked for a vow. Before this vow ever happens, before Jephthah ever paints himself into this corner that he don't even see a way out of, and the book of Leviticus tells us that you can break a vow. But before any of this happens, Jephthah has been given the promise and the presence of God. God didn't ask him for a thing. He had been given the promise and the presence of God, but he felt like he needed to make a vow. What this shows us is just like Israel, Jephthah had been infected with these pagan morals. The culture around Jephthah was wicked and violent, and that had rubbed off on him just like it had rubbed off on Israel. He was a savior of Israel, but he was insufficient because he had these moral failures, He was wicked and violent just like the culture was wicked and violent. And that's one of the things that we even have to watch and guard ourselves over. As our culture becomes more wicked and as our culture becomes more violent, we cannot be infected with these things and take on its cultural aspects to relate to God with. Just because the culture sees something in a specific way doesn't mean that God sees it that way. Just because the culture says that love is this does not mean that that is the love of God. We cannot allow ourselves to be infected with our culture. And that is what happened with Jephthah. One way or another, whatever it was that he did, he was infected by this bad moral. But not only that, he had been infected by a pagan self-righteousness or a pagan works, righteousness. What we see in Jephthah's vow is he was trying to prove how committed he really was to God. And we do the same thing. We think we need to prove to God how committed we really are to him, how much we really serve him, how much we have given up for him. That's a works righteousness. God does not ask us for that. Right. Not only was he trying to prove his commitment, he was trying to buy off God. I've made this statement before. When I was young, I watched a movie with Mel Gibson called The Maverick. It's not a bad movie, but I watched it and I felt so guilty about watching this movie that was rated PG-13 that when I got sick a couple days later, I begged God to not let me die from this stomach bug. I was a dramatic eight-year-old. I begged God not to let me die. I said, if you will not let me die from this summit, but I'll never watch Maverick with Mel Gibson again. I wanted to buy God off. For the record, I've not watched it. I've kept that vow. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that we see with Jeff is he was not responding to the favor that he had been given. He had been given the promise and the presence of God. And he wasn't responding to this He was trying to get it. Do you see this works righteousness in this man? He was trying to prove how committed he was by giving this vow. He was trying to buy God off that God would do what God had already said that he would do. And he wasn't responding to the promise and presence he had already been given. He was trying to achieve what he already had. The point that we need to understand from this text is that that is not what God asks. And we even see some of these themes in the text where he gives his only child to God. There's only one, one begotten son that God required, and it wasn't Jephthah's. But that's what we do. In our sinful nature, we're constantly tempted to fall back into this works righteousness that Jephthah did and offering God some deal or giving up something that is important to us. I've known of people who said, I gave up coffee so I could have the power of God. I gave up this thing so that God would be pleased with me. I gave up this thing to obtain the favor of God when God never asked for these things. It it may sound deep and it may sound spiritual, but it is deep spiritual nonsense. God did not ask you for some kind of sacrifice. God does not want you to say that if I give up X, then I will do Y. He's not looking for this. The fact of the matter is God only demanded one sacrifice. And he says in the book of Hebrews that sacrifice was final. The only deal that God will ever accept has already been made. And it was made by himself in the person of his son on our behalf. He has already done what he has demanded. And we see this in the text. He had already given Jephthah his promise and his presence. And Jephthah tried to work it up himself. We have been given the person, the presence, the promise of Jesus Christ as our righteousness. Your righteousness, your works, not mine, O Christ. We've been given these things, but we have the tendency to try and fall back on our own doing. That's not what God calls us to do. He didn't call Jephthah to give some type of vow, to give something up. He gave him a promise and he gave him his presence without even Jephthah's asking. It was by his grace and his mercy that Jephthah was given these things. But the grace and mercy of God wasn't enough for Jephthah. Unfortunately, it's not enough for us sometimes. What this text ought to do is to call us back to understand that we have in Christ, we have been given Christ for us everything that we will ever need to gain the favor of God. There is nothing that God demands from you to gain his favor. There is nothing that God is asking for from you that will somehow make you more spiritual in his sight because he has done every single thing that he demands for you. As a matter of fact, the book of 1 Peter tells us that we have now been made lively stones who are built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. The only reason that anything is acceptable to God is through Christ. Amen. It's Amen. nothing that we can work up in ourselves because even our own goodness is filthy before him. Right. Everything that we do now isn't to gain his acceptance, but it is done acceptable to him because of Jesus. What does Romans 12 say? I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Because of the mercy of God. Not because of the demands of God. I'm asking you because of the mercy of God that you present yourself a living sacrifice. Jesus has paid our debt. We don't need to make deals with God. We just simply, in faith, trust him that he will bring it to pass. That's what Jephthah had been given. He had been given a promise that it was going to happen. God didn't need a superstitious vow from Jephthah, and he doesn't need a superstitious vow from you. He's done everything, everything in his son. So, if we don't see anything else from this insufficient Savior, this guy who did deliver Israel but messed up royally in doing it, we don't see anything else. Let's see ourselves. Let's see the tendency that we have to try and offer God something that He doesn't need. The book of Ephesians says that He has saved us and that we are His workmanship created. In Christ Jesus. Everything that God does in us and through us is done, already acceptable because of Christ. So let's leave this text not looking at ourselves, not looking at what we can give up, not looking at what we can give God, but simply once again looking at the person of Christ, what God has already given to us. Let's rest in that. Mm -hmm. Let's pray.